37th parallel on America's haunted highway, it's Pixelated Paranormal, your guide to the unusual and the strange. Well, what's up, everybody? Welcome back to Pixelated Paranormal, episode 224, part two of our Cave Monster series. Now, before we get started, uh, with me, as always, is Preston. What's up, all you cool crocacoons or crocodingos? Hope you're all having a swell week. Fantastic. And also, Stephen will be back. He's been on hiatus again. They're currently moving into a new place where he'll have a proper recording uh, studio set up. So just uh, hang in a little longer and he'll be back in the back seat again. Or we're kind of bullshitting you and it's really like Weekend at Bernie's and Stephen's actually dead and we're just trying to figure <laughs> out like how to make a right. face, fake vocal cord and like, uh, you know, move his mouth and stuff. Spray him down for breeze once in a while. Yeah. Cover him with some candle wax and then put a uh, paper towel roll up his... Never mind. So <laughs> this, episode, <laughs> this episode might be a little short again because I had jury duty this week, which really put us behind schedule on recording and even writing an episode. So what we're going to do is do part two of the Cave Monster series with a Vietnamese cryptid that's found oftentimes dwelling in the caves. But before Ooh. we get started, Preston, you had some fun comments you wanted to share from the old YouTube page. Yeah, so look, like when we recorded this episode originally and, and we kind of knew that um, the special effect that we added wasn't uh, going to you know, be the best. Like it sounded like hot garbage after we did it, but then we fixed <laughs> it for the next two episodes. But then we did like a master cut with everything fixed, but when you're trying to upload a master cut like four hours on YouTube, it's just it's not it's not it's not good. And uh, so I, I made the bad decision to upload them individually, like you made the bad decision to originally use that sound effect. Uh, <laughs> so we're, we're kind of both to blame here. But uh, the first comment on uh, Pixelated Paranormal Podcast episode one twenty three abduction to the ninth planet dude looks like a lady um a dear listener left us the alien voice filter at 1700 or 17 minutes was unbearable fuck you for making me sit through it (laughs) well i mean fuck us too right because we had to sit through it buddy so we feel your pain we we know what you're we know what you're talking about yeah, man, I did not realize how much actual, you know, noise was involved in that filter, and I learned my lesson, and I quickly deleted it from the library of filters that we might use. So, yeah, you're not wrong. We're going to give you that one. We're going to chalk that one up for uh, the listeners there as a extra point yeah. on the board. Lesson learned. And, uh, you know, the next anymore. one kind of wanted to point out, well, this is kind of shit. Well, what <laughs> fucked it? The use of a crappy digital voice. What a fucking waste. Exclamation point. Again, we're well aware of this, and uh, thank you for pointing this out. Uh, You know, live and learn, buddy. Live and learn. Yeah, I mean, you know, could have been a lot worse. Who knows? But, you know, the one guy 
who did say that the uh, alien voice filter was unbearable. He also made a comment on episode 155, The Vertical Plane. Sounds like an episode of Doctor Who. Yeah, I think that guy's so, I mean, in it for the long haul, so he was just trying to yeah, give constructive so. criticism. Um, the <laughs> right. other guy, Robert, if you're there, buddy, we hope you're still listening. Yeah. <clears throat> and then um, on episode 155 as well for the vertical plane, we have a guy named Kel Salar saying, calling 2109, calling 2109. So we're gaining traction, and like we said before, the bigger the audience, the bigger the chance people are not going to love every single thing we do. That's right. And uh, if you haven't yet, get your asses over to YouTube, like, subscribe, and share. Mm-hmm. Yeah, please do that. We just about got the entire backlog up and loaded on there. So um, it's not showing up numerically like we'd hope it would. So sometimes you got to just go in there and search for the number of the episode you're looking for. But it's almost all up there now. Yeah. Well, in true fashion, this one will be a short one, but it's going to be a good one. It's going to be part two of our Cave Monster series. And this time we're going to be heading over to Vietnam. It's not our first trip. And hopefully it won't be our last. You know we have our favorite episode. Rest in peace, Big John Wiener. The man who killed... No, the man who blew up Bigfoot. That's right. The man who blew up Bigfoot. Yeah, hell of a good episode. Hell of a guy. Hell of a dad. Hell of a man. Well, we're going to be taking a trip back to the old Vietnam. But not before we give you guys a couple lesser known cryptids as a delicious little appetizer. So first up on this episode's list of creepy cave dwellers, we have the infamous cave cow. (laughs) A creature whose name is about just about as interesting as the creature itself. Cave cows were described by the Maya people as lizard-shaped animals, but covered in fur. They could grow up to be about 10 feet long. And according to their names, you guessed it, these creatures lived in caves. So like a dewback off of Star Wars. Yeah. I'm going to take your word for it. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I know what a tauntaun is. Does that give me any extra points? No. You know, so in episode one, or not episode one, but episode four, when they, they were um, the Tusken Raiders, they had those things that looked like an ox fucked a lizard. And it had like the horns in oh, yeah. there. Yeah, those were dewbacks. Oh, wow. Yeah. So, I mean, pretty similar. They also look kind of like a sloth. And I'm curious if that's exactly what these are is just a sloth, a giant, you know, um, land sloth that was misidentified. Yeah. According, though, to an archaeologist named Thomas Gon and French naturalist Francois Blancaneau. And his servant Joe, ill-fated servant Joe. They found some of these creatures in Belize near El Cayo, shortly before Blanca No had retired. While resting one afternoon in the remote savannah region during a calm, windless day, Mr. Blanca No sent out his faithful servant Joe to investigate what they were seeing off in the distance as a series of palm trees that would be swaying back and forth and sometimes jiggling like something was shaking them. So, Joe made his way through the wood and the thicket, and to his dismay, he found something of horrifying proportion. 
He let out a primal scream that could be heard by Blanca No, several yards away, who came running to his rescue just in time to see his faithful servant bleeding out from three gashes across his stomach. Now, spoiler alert, old Joe died of his injuries, something that Blanca No had described as ripping him up before running into the bush was about 10 feet long, hunched over like a lizard covered in fur, with large three-clawed fingers on each hand. Now, Blanca No spent a day following the creature's attack, following its pretty obvious trail, as he called it. This went through the savanna, the virgin forest, and a dry riverbed before coming to the entrance of a cave. He says, almost exactly like the thumb and two fingers of a gigantic human hand, each digit was armed with a great claw. Intending to return during the next daytime, Blanca No tried retracing his steps but became lost in the savanna and made his way back to El Cayo after a few days. He then made a party of several men who attempted to find the cave but were never able to find the entrance. They said this region, however, is literally honeycombed with caves and caverns beneath the dense virgin brush. Now, later on in 1932, again, the explorer Gone was leading a British museum expedition through the Azul River, a tributary of the Hondo River, which borders between Mexico's Quantana Roo State and Belize, when they glimpsed another large animal fitting the same bill, about 10 feet long, covered in long, black, shaggy fur, with a large white mane which obscured its face, which obscured its face as it was running through a swampy region on all fours like a giant ape. Now, you fast forward to 2015, a pair of tourists that were traveling to Belize wrote to phantoms and monsters claiming to have had a near encounter with the same weird creature that their tour guide had called a cow. They never saw the animal, only small trees being pushed out of the way as this thing moved through the thick vegetation, but they estimate the thing had to have been very large. I kind of feel like a cave cow sitting in my studio right now, down in the basement, <laughs> it's cold. Do you? Oh, I have a Sherpa-lined jacket on and my beer belly sticking out and, mm-hmm. you know, kind of furry and fuzzy and... Look at that, man. Yeah. Now, Ivan Sanderson, Ivan T. Sanderson, was a British biologist and a writer born in Edinburgh, Scotland, who I'd never heard of, but apparently he is a prominent member of the Paranormal Society here, along with Belgian-French biologist Bernard Huevelmans. Sanderson is a founding figure of cryptozoology, a pseudoscience and subculture. Sanderson authored material on paranormal subjects and wrote fiction under the pen name of Terence Roberts. So back in like the 1920s, 30s, and 40s, this guy was one of the original... Luna, you got to quit snoring, sweetie. Uh, he was one of the guys on the street, man, just one of these beat reporters going through, following all these insane leads of, you know, creepy creatures all through Africa, South America, and the like. And apparently he wrote an essay called What Pilots a UFO, which was featured in the November 1957 issue of Fantastic Universe. 
Well, Ivan T. Sanderson has a theory that cave cows were actually medium-sized ground sloths, consistent with the description of hairy, lizard-shaped bodies and cave-dwelling habitats. Because all around Belize, these things are seen by villagers, and they're reported to run out, eat berries and, you know, random vegetation, and then if you see one spook it, it takes off like a herd of cattle into a cave where it disappears, hence the name Cave Cow. Now, Carl Schuker also writes that the tracks of an animal which could have killed Joe and the injuries inflicted upon the dead man's body were consistent with those of a medium-sized ground sloth as well, a conclusion that's supported by Richard Freeman with the caveat that the story may simply be a tale of a traveler's ill fate. So I don't know. Old cave cows, the most boring cryptid I've ever read about, might simply just be a ground sloth. Yeah. Now, the reason why I brought up who Ivan T. Sanderson was is he's actually going to be involved in our second story of the episode. Presto, you ever heard of an old creature called the Alatiao? Nope. The Alatiao is basically kind of a cousin to the Bat Squatch. It is a giant, enormous, bat-like creature with a big monkey's head instead of the typical, you know, dog-shaped head of a normal bat. Some of the first encounters of the... Alatiao were again by Mr. Ivan T. Sanderson. I'm starting to think we should do a full episode on Mr. Ivan T. Sanderson by himself. Yeah. Ivan T. Sanderson and Gerald Russell claimed to have seen an Alatiao in 1932 when they were leading the Percy Sladen expedition to West Africa. Their sighting was first published in the Sanderson book called Animal Treasure from 1937. A comparative anatomist at the University of Copenhagen who traveled into Cameroon and the Republic of the Congo told Roy P. McCall that he had met others in Cameroon who believed in the giant bat, including a school teacher who also claimed to have seen it. Now, the Alatiao, which has only been seen briefly by a few, is entirely black and about the size of an eagle, with a mouth full of semicircle-like pointed teeth that are all about their own width apart from each other which means they're all about equal distance apart from each other. These teeth were described as chattering. And after the sighting, both Sanderson and Gerald Russell agreed the animal had a wingspan of at least 12 feet. Sanderson later adds that the bat's head was more like that of a monkey instead of a dog and wasn't pointed. Now, Sanderson and Russell originally saw the Alatiao in 1932 as they were wading through the shallow river in the Asumbo Mountains just north of Momfrey. After they stopped to retrieve a hammer-headed bat they had just shot, Sanderson stepped on something that moved, possibly a tortoise, and he lost his balance. When he recovered, he looked up just as Russell shouted, Look out! And he says, And I looked, and then I let out a shout and instantly bobbed down under the water, because coming straight at me, just a few feet above the water, was a black thing the size of an eagle, I had only a glimpse of its face, yet it was quite sufficient, for its lower jaw hung open and bore a semicircle of pointed white teeth. When I emerged from the water, it was gone. George was facing the other way, blazing off his second barrel. I arrived dripping on my own rock, and we looked at each other. Will it come back, we both said at the same time? And just before it became too dark to see it, it came back 
hurtling down the river, its teeth chattering through the air, letting out this little as it was cleft by a great black set of Dracula-like wings. We were both off guard. My gun was unloaded, and the brute made straight for George. He was able to duck when the animal soared right over top of him, and all at once was swallowed up by the darkness of the night. When they returned to their camp, they encountered several local hunters who had come to sell them animals. Sanderson told these people about the encounter, and they told him that they had just seen a creature known as the Alatiao, a very fearful animal. The hunters then fled from the camp, and when they returned the following day, Sanderson and Russell refused to move on. They became sullen. Both men kept detailed diaries while in Africa, and when Sanderson consulted Russell on the sighting all the way forward in 1970, he found that both their accounts still matched in memory and in writing both. Sanderson subsequently included in another account of the sighting during an investigation of the unexplained back in 1972. Whipping around towards Russell, I was confronted by an apparition, such as I had never imagined existed. About 15 feet away and just above the level of my eyes, it was coming straight at me, awfully fast, so I ducked down in the water. I got a very good look at its face, and to put it facetiously, that weren't no Boyd. Its lower jaw hung down, and as the light of the sun was directly shining into its face, I could have counted the huge white teeth if I had enough time. They were all a good two inches long and about the same length, and all equally separated by the spaces of the same width. The animal that flew at me had a muzzle more like that of a monkey instead of a dog or any kind of reptile I've seen, and in that, it was not drawn out to a point. The whole animal was coal black in color, including the wings, which were quite opaque. It didn't appear to be hairy, but then neither do most bats until you examine them in your hand. Recovering my gun, I swung down and around and called to Gerald to watch out for it to come back. And a short time later, it did. But in those few moments, the last rays of sun had moved up and there was a deep shadow over the river. We both blazed away with both barrels, but the great creature just sailed right over us, uninterrupted, making this little ch-ch-ch-ch-ch sound. So fast was it going, in fact, its speed of flight was almost greater than we had estimated, and the speed may have been the reason we missed it. Though Gerald is a deadly snapshot and was almost on top of us, I've often wondered if we did hit it, but our shots, which were for collecting small animals, just failed to penetrate the hide. Alternatively, we may simply have blasted holes through its vast wing membranes, but never damaged it. We made haste back to our camp, about a mile upstream. Now, legend says across this area that these creatures, the Alatiao, actually live in caves in packs, just like, you know, classic horror movies and other, you know, movies of exploration, you'll find giant bats flying around caves. Well, apparently these things are fucking ginormous with 15-foot wingspans, and that's a great reason why I have no plans to go in any of those caves anytime soon. I think, um, you know, kind of like what uh, fascinates me with stories like this is, mm-hmm. you know, from a Western perspective, we're very overpopulated like sure you know you think of how vast our cities are and even like our farmlands um you know in kansas 
you know, you'll have like farm fields and then right next to it, you'll have like a housing development, right? Like there's not, there's not a lot of space that is so thick and condensed with like foliage that it's hard to explore. Like in the United States, it's pretty much all open. Um, until you get up north and then you start going toward like Alaska and then you have like, you know, the redwood forest and things like that. And that's where, you know, if you go back in time, you, you see more accounts of like cryptids and like Bigfoots or like in India or Africa or in Vietnam in this case, because the jungles are so just compact, like a square mile, like here, you don't think a square mile is anything. But in a jungle, like a square mile is a fucking lot of space. And there are so many just, yeah, we might say like folklore, like, you know, cryptids or monsters, but it could be just an unknown bat species or an unknown sloth species that because, you know, the, the villagers and the natives are just so sparse compared to the actual land in the jungle that mm-hmm. you have these animals that just are able to thrive and survive. Where if you look at like South America, because of over deforestation, like a lot of these animals are now extinct. Where you have these other parts of the world where nobody touches the jungle and you can't really go into it. That mm-hmm. uh, you have, you know, basically like ice age animals that are like, you know, still kicking around. Yeah, I think you kind of hit the nail on the head there, especially with the idea of the population being so sparse because it kind of becomes, you know, a rumor mill or almost like the old phone game where you see something and tell your friend and then before you know it, you know, because there's not that many people, the story gets twisted around from village to village and next thing you know, you have a giant monkey bat flying around and in reality, it's just, you know, a big hammerhead bat or just a normal, you know, like you said, undiscovered species. But through that becomes a cryptid sighting and then, you know, cautionary folklore to local people. You know, don't let your kids play too often by themselves and don't get too close to the caves now, kids. Ooh. Or the asshole monkey bat will get you. <laughs> right. Well, either it's a misidentified bat or a misidentified tree sloth. That's one thing. But our last story of the episode is something completely different, and I don't think it's a misidentified creature at all. Our final story is going to be about the Devils of Sandong. Our final creature and story from the night comes all the way from Vietnam, land of the infamous rock ape. And the primary account from the story comes from an anonymous U.S. Army corporal from the Vietnam War who claims he had a very strange encounter back in 1970 in a region of South Vietnam about 30 miles south of the DMZ. According to the man, he had been second in command in a platoon of soldiers, and they had just set up a biovac in a heavy forested area marked with steep hills. After setting up camp for the evening, the platoon engaged in a patrol of a small valley near the camp when they detected strange movement ahead. Now thinking it might be an enemy patrol, the soldiers hid and waited for around 15 minutes, during which time they continued to witness sporadic, furtive actions through the trees. Although visibility was poor, and there was not enough light to make out who or what exactly it was causing it. Now the movement eventually ceased, and the squad wearily continued their mission, 
with only the light of a full moon to guide them. At some point, the platoon supposedly comes across a wall of what appears to be boulders that had been stacked one on top of each other, smack dab in the middle of a pass between two steep hills. On the side of the sheer wall was a dark opening that looked as if it could be the entrance to a cave. It was around five feet high and three feet wide, and when the men drew closer, they could see that the surface of the opening was smooth, as if it had been carefully carved away by hand or bored by machinery of some sort. Although the Viet Cong enemy were well known to utilize tunnels and caves, none of the men had ever seen a cave opening quite like this. But things get stranger still, because when they drew nearer, they detected a rancid stench coming from the murky blackness within. They described it as being so gut-wrenchingly putrid that some of the soldiers fell strongly sick to their stomachs and backed away in revulsion. They shone their lights into the maw of the cave, but it did very little good to illuminate what lied within that dark tank place or what could be producing the terrible stench. It was finally decided they would fall back around 150 feet away from the entrance and stake out the cave entrance for some time to see what might happen. So as the platoon waited there observing the cave opening, they noticed that the night was unusually quiet and eerily calm, and a noticeable absence of the usual jungle sounds that should have been all around them. The only thing they could hear was an unidentified deep rumbling that seemed to come from somewhere off in the distance. The whole atmosphere was described as quite unsettling. They'd wait there the entire night without incident, and as dawn then approached at around 0500 hours, and as the first light made its shy appearance, some movement was finally spied at the darkened cave entrance. The soldiers tensed up, and what they first assumed to be a man slowly emerged from the cave, crouching down in the clearing in front of the cave's mouth. However, they soon noticed as it stood up that whatever it was was around seven feet high and moved in a very bizarre manner. The platoon became firmly aware this thing was not human at all, just as another came stalking out of the cave entrance, and it was at this time they were both claiming to make some hellish hissing sounds. As they watched on, it could be discerned that creatures looked more like bipedal humanoid lizards, with scaly shiny skin described as being so dark as to be practically obsidian in color. The arms and legs were both human-like, but scaly and tipped with long claws. The faces had very large, forward-set eyes that were said to look like that of a snake. No tails could be visible on either creature, but they were clearly wearing some sort of form of green robe. But what happened next was sudden and abrupt, and chaos is what they described. No one gave the order. It seemed like the entire squad opened fire at once. God damn it, Tommy, stop shooting the fucking gun. You're not going to get Jerry in the bushes that way. I tell you what, every piece of vegetation between us and them was quickly sheared away. I yelled out a ceasefire, and at the same time, I was looking in the direction of the cave. And I'll be dipped, there was nothing there. We immediately checked out our flank in case these things circled around us, but there was nothing. As we approached the cave, 
Ready to resume action if needed, it became apparent that the beings had escaped, most likely back into that hellhole. It was soon decided to set charges and close the cave entrance, so we blew it all to hell. When we returned to the camp, we seemed to be in a daze. There was little discussion of the incident, and we never debriefed, so I know the sergeant never followed the report. Then again, this is the army, so if he did, it was kept quiet by the brass. I like how every time we come across a monster in Vietnam that the U.S. soldiers are like, eh, blow it up. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> we already got so one we- enemy. We don't need two. That's right. That's the way to do it. Ask no questions, you know? (laughs) Right. And file no reports. So it's hard to tell what exactly the creatures were. Aliens? Some kind of lost subterranean civilization? Who exactly knows? But one extra report that seems to suggest aliens is yet another case that came just a few years before from 1967. Back on October 12, 1967... A six-man long-range recon patrol was operating in a heavy, heavily jungled region near the North Vietnam border, and they set up camp for a night in a defense perimeter. With the men taking turns sleeping as others maintained a lookout for the enemy. Around 1.45 a.m., the leader of the patrol was on watch, and he claims he saw movement nearby. After which, he woke up the other men and they prepared their weapons for a potential firefight. As the patrol geared up and turned their eyes to the dark jungle, a very strange and unknown creature emerged from the muck. It was described as looking like a small, gray humanoid with enormous black eyes, a long face, and slender arms. It gave off a faint, strange glow that pushed back the cringing darkness around it. One of the men allegedly didn't hesitate to fire off at the creature, hitting it squarely in the head to send a brilliant blue syrupy fluid spattering across the foliage. At that moment, three lights appeared in the sky to form a perfect triangle before darting off into the night. It would later become known that the two other recon teens operating in that same area had similar strange encounters that evening, and the headquarters were claiming that this was hard to keep radio contact due to some sort of communication disturbance. Again, aliens or something else. Now, the sightings of the devil of Vietnam don't end there. You fast forward back to 1992. A local Vietnamese man named Ho Khan was out searching the Phong Nha Ke Bang National Park, looking for food and timber to earn a couple bucks for a modest income, when during his rummaging, he stumbled across a cave opening made out of limestone up on a cliff. He noticed clouds billowing out from the entrance and heard the sound of a river raging from somewhere inside. As he made his way up to the entry of the cave and ventured a few meters inside, he encountered a creature that he only could describe as the devil creature. He described the creature as having a humanoid body but with skin and a facial structure closer to that of a dragon or a lizard took one single photograph of the creature and unknowingly captured one of these beings within the darkened area. Now, you may have actually heard of this cave known as Sun Dong, or Vietnamese Hong Sang Dong, because it's actually the world's largest cave located in the Quang Binh province of Vietnam. Now, 
Back in 1992, this gentleman discovered it, but it was officially discovered back in 2009 by British cavers, led by Howard Limbert. The name Sundong Cave means Mountain River Cave. This specific cave was created 2 to 5 million years ago by a river water that eroded away limestone underneath the mountain. Where the limestone was weak and the ceiling collapsed, it created a giant skylight. Now, the cave is more than 200 meters wide, 150 meters high, and approximately 9 kilometers long, with caverns big enough to fit entire city streets inside of them, twice as large as Deer Cave in Malaysia, which was currently considered to be the world's largest, with a 9 meter wide, 100 meter high size being 2 kilometers long. The Sun Dong Cave was classified as the largest cave by the BCRA, British Cave Research Association, and selected as one of the most beautiful in the globe by BBC News. Now, I would advise you guys, outside of just looking up paranormal stories, go to www.sundongcave.org. That's S-O-N-D-O-O-N-G-C-A-V. This cave is freaking beautiful. It's got an underground forest or like I, I'd call it more of a jungle. It's, it's incredible. Caves by themselves, you know, save all the creepy things like gnomes and Bigfoots. Caves are amazing anyway, and this is definitely worth a look. But what's strange here is that many explorers and some visitors have experienced what they call foreboding senses of being watched while they're inside the cave. Some explorers have mentioned hearing strange chattering off in the distance and what sounds like skittering light footsteps in some of the quieter parts of the cave when they've been certain they were alone. And even some visitors have mentioned seeing shadowy figures and what looked to be glowing eye shine down some of the darker corridors as they're passing by in small groups. So whatever was seen that day in Vietnam might still be lurking in the cave of San Dong. So th there is a very similar tale that takes place in India, and I might have brought it up once on an episode. I can't remember, but the, the story goes, and <clears throat> don't quote me because I'm pulling this totally out of the, you know, the, the pink matter in the back of my mind here. Um, <laughs> there was a village... And the, the local folklore was that in the middle of this village, there was like a well. And um, you just like the kids couldn't play around it. <clears throat> and um, it was like one of those things where like once a year they would leave like an offering, which happened to be like an individual. And they would lower that person down into the well, never to be seen again. And there were talks of uh, the lizard people or like, you know, like the some sort of gods um, that lived in this subterranean kingdom. And their entrance into our domain was at the bottom of this well. It led into a cavern and at the end of the cavern was a door. And, you know, modern day people are like, bullshit. And, you know, they're going to go down in the well with, like, gear and stuff. And so that's what these British explorers did. Um, I want to say it was, like, you know, the, the mid-'90s, early-2000s, right? They, they get down in there with all their gear. And, um, you know, at the bottom of the well, no water. It's, like, really dank and smelly and gross. And they, they mm -hmm. make their way down. And, you know, they're 100 feet in, whatever it is, and they come up to a door. And it 
you know, like a scary Indiana Jones Temple of the Doom type door. Like it's got snakes and shit on it. There's like claw marks. Uh, there's some like human remains around it. And um, the door was like slightly open. So this guy like pushes it, looks inside, hears a hiss, sees some eye shine, and then they just fucking booked it. Um, at that point, they were <laughs> like, you know what? Um, the you know the Indian people here are probably right. There's a subterranean race of lizard people, and I don't want to get eaten, so we're out. Thanks, Terry. <laughs> That's the kind of lizard people I like to hear about. I could really give a lick if Hillary Clinton was a lizard person eating babies. I just want yeah. to know if like this is kind of like the land of the lost. That old uh, car was it a TV show on Nickelodeon where you had to just yeah, or you know maybe people. it's like. It's like Cobra Law off of G.I. Joe, right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Hell yeah, dude. Well, folks, that's all the time we have for this episode, but we will make it up to you next time with an extra beefy one. Um, I just think that the um, the jury duty kind of got thrown in there and really put a kink in things. And, uh, you know, it's your civic duty to go do it, so if you get called for it, definitely make sure you do show up. The judge yeah. we had today told us that uh, he greatly appreciated everybody showing up, and he said you'd be surprised at the number of people who just don't answer the summons and or don't show up the day they're summoned. And uh, you can get arrested for it once they call your name and send you that newsletter. I mean, you're in there, buddy. I've never made it as far as you have, and I've been summons. <laughs> it's like it's like what, like every five years, like every every five years, every eight I years, something yeah, like that. Maybe even more frequent than that, because this is the fourth time I was summoned, and the first time I actually had to go. So I, I've only been able to get out of it once, and um, I don't remember. It either had to do something like I uh, was having like a final exam at you know in college and I couldn't get out of it or somebody had died. Yeah. And then so like the next time they're like, dude, you've used your one you know your one get out of jail free card, and they're like, call this number. And so I call this number and they're like, um, yeah, you know, we're not going to need you today. You know, please call back tomorrow at this time. And so you know, I call back the next day. And they're like, you know, thank you for, you know, calling uh, at this time. You don't need to report for jury duty. And then, like, a couple years later, I get the same summons. And so every single time I get to the point to where I make the phone call to report this day, I check in. They're like, nope, not needed. So I'm like, peace out. Go, Still golden. <laughs> yeah. Um, we were told today after serving and being released that it could be up to – Two years of not being summoned, but you could be summoned after after a two-year break. So, yeah, the first time I got summoned, I was going to uh, community college, and I had a life drawing class and just didn't want to go. So I asked a professor, and they're like, well, you can tell them the honest truth that you take a life drawing course, and each class is imperative because, you know, the model has a different pose, and it's, you know, part of your learning experience. So I said that, and they said it was fine. Uh, a couple years later, I was going to WSU, and it was finals week. They summoned me, and I said, hey, look, like I've got finals I really shouldn't miss. And they said, oh, that's cool. We get it. You'll be summoned you know, down the road. And I got the letter in uh, September, and we had a trip that we were taking, and it was non-refundable. And so I called the number, and I said, I'm not trying to dodge you guys. You have it on record. This is the third attempt to get me to come to jury duty. I've got a non-refundable trip. And the lady was, like, super cool, and I'm like, I got out of it. Heck, yeah. And she's like, yeah, don't even worry about it. Like, we understand. 
times are tough right now and you don't want to get screwed out of a thousand dollars. So, um, just pick a week in January. And I said, what? She's like, yeah, pick a week in January where you're going to serve. And I said, okay, how about the week of the 10th? And she's like, great, save your letter, call that number. And there's a 95% chance you're going to be served or you're going to serve. And sure enough, man, I was, uh, I sat there the entire day yesterday on Monday, just twiddling my thumbs, waiting to be called. And then I was told I had to come back today, show up today. And they're like, no, like go upstairs. You're, you're on the panel. So I was, uh, (laughs) I was in the room and, uh, that's about all you can really say. You're supposed to keep that stuff tight lip, but you know, it only took a day. And the judge told us that, uh, yeah, it's, it's impressive how many people just skip out and think they don't have to do it, but I don't know. Rather not go to jail, I guess. Yeah. Well, what do you say we drop some outros and get out of here, buddy? Yeah, let's get the fuck out. Sounds good. All right. First of all, if you are on the social medias, why not check us out on Instagram at PXL Paranormal? If you're on the old Facebook, check us Facebook. Facebook, check us out at the Pixelated Paranormal Podcast. Send us an email. We'd love to hear your own personal stories at pixelatedparanormal at gmail.com Presto, what do you got, buddy? And as always, if you need a beard, if you want a beard, if you want to grow a beard that's not going to get you misidentified like a cave cow or whatever other cryptid we've <laughs> talked about this evening, then you need to do yourself a favor and go over to bigdobsbeardbomb.com and use promo code PXLPARA for 20% off your order and pick yourself up some scents like Bay Rum, Dundee Cedar, Sweet Tobacco, Fresh Citrus, Mint, Classic. Get it all. Get it at Dobbs. And like we said at the beginning of the episode, get your asses to the choppa. I mean, YouTube. Like, subscribe, share with all your friends. Hell, leave us a comment. Even if it's not a good one and I find it amusing, we'll read it on the episode. That we can <laughs> right. take it. We're not sensitive. I don't have feelings. That you know, they're gone. They've been buried deep down inside in the blackness of my soul, like that fucking cave with the lizard people in it. <laughs> so do your worst. We love it. Um. Yeah. Maybe not. Sean's sensitive. But... That's what he's trying to say. So maybe don't direct him towards Sean. But me. I can handle it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Please call out Preston specifically. Um, and if you're on iTunes, please give us a rating and review on there as well. We sure greatly appreciate it. And I mean, all jokes and um, seriousness as well. We're not going to know what turns you off if you don't tell us. So, I mean, clearly we knew that filter was a bad idea. But yeah, yeah. Thanks for telling us. Noted. And we won't do it again. Yeah. All right, if you're in the Wichita area, please stop by and see our dear friend Leslie and the rest of the gang at CD Trade Post at Pawnee and Seneca. And on behalf of Stephen, I'd like to say cheers to the weird shit in the world and those of us who love to talk about it. And stay spooky and stay on the paranormal highway. The cast that Pixelated Paranormal would like to thank you for listening to this week's episode. Pixelated Paranormal is here to tell you tales of the fantastical, the strange, the unknown, tales that will move you a little further down the paranormal highway. If you'd like to share your own listener story, we would love to hear it. Email us at pixelatedparanormal at gmail.com. Again, that's pixelatedparanormal at gmail.com. We'd really love to hear from you. Again, thanks for listening to this week's episode of Pixelated Paranormal, your guide to the unusual and 
the strange.